Song of Solomon. This book is an adult book, but it's also a beautiful book. In our sexually broken world, it offers a picture of what physical intimacy can be within the covenant of marriage. By evoking the marriage covenant, it also looks beyond itself to Jesus and his covenant with his bride, the church. Okay? All right, let's think about authorship and title. The first question is, what do we call this book? The conundrum arises in the very first verse, which says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So, is it the Song of Songs, or is it the Song of Solomon? What does your Bible say? What, what do you think? It, what, look in your Bible. What does your Bible say? Song of Songs or Song of Solomon? Solomon, we got, does anybody have a song of songs in theirs? You have yours? And Kathy, what version is yours? NIV, NIV has song of songs. ESV, ESV also song of songs? No, but I mean like title of the book. What is it listed as? Song of Solomon. There is some difference in the different Bibles, again, because of that, that conundrum, which we'll sort of unpack now. Okay. Now, while acknowledging that there are many people who call the book Song of Songs, I'm going to go ahead and call it uh, Song of Solomon during this study, and we'll unpack it a little bit as to why we're doing that. Okay, so let's move on. No matter what we call the book, it's interesting to note that the phrase Song of Songs, 1 verse 1, is a Hebrew way of expressing a superlative in other words, the writer is telling us this is the greatest love song ever written. Sorry, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. This is the song of songs, the ultimate song. Okay, let's look at some more historical background. Uh, one more language question. The phrase the ESV translates, which is Solomon's, is a translation of a single Hebrew preposition. Here it is in Hebrew. Uh, you read from right to left in Hebrew. So do you see that little guy on the front that looks kind of like a, like a number seven with a little tail on there? Uh, that is a Hebrew lamed, and it makes sort of the L song, like the, the L sound, like the L in our English language. That little Hebrew preposition, which uh, it combines with a little thing called a, a hirik yod, so it makes a sound lee, like the name lee, L-E-E. -E. That little Hebrew preposition, lee, can indicate authorship. It can also indicate that the book was dedicated to Solomon or that it was written by someone else during the reign of Solomon. So it's of Solomon or according to Solomon or by Solomon. Here, so there, that has led to many different interpretations of who actually wrote the book. Here is the pro-Solomon argument for the authorship of the book. In the book of Psalms, the preposition lee is a strong, reliable indicator of authorship. We know, for example, that David wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 clearly portrays David's repentance 
after he committed adultery and murder. You remember, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah the Hittite. Well, Psalm 51 is said to be uh, Lee David, Lee David, just as the Song of Solomon is said to be Lee or Lay Solomon. Does that make sense? Now, here's the anti-Solomon argument. Uh, the book of 1 Kings tells us that Solomon had many wives and concubines. Those wives and concubines were a source of constant spiritual struggle in his life. Uh, they led to his downward spiral into idolatry, which plagued uh, Israel and Judah for many, many generations. And so, the, the argument goes, it's hard to reconcile the picture of monogamous covenantal love that we find in the Song of Solomon... Uh, with the actual life of King Solomon. Uh, he was not a monogamous person, and he did not hold the marriage covenant in high regard. He had many wives, many concubines, so what could it be? Now, here's a curious alternative. Uh, perhaps it is possible that the song was written by an, an anonymous woman. Uh, the female voice in the Song of Solomon accounts for 53% of the text, while the male counts for just 34% of the text. So it seems to be written uh, with a great deal of sympathy for uh, the woman's point of view in the story. So possible, but unprovable. Now, for these reasons, it's probably best to say that the book is anonymous, written sometime during the Solomonic period, which was 971 to 931 B.C. Given that... This, that Solomon was a poet who wrote at least uh, 1,005 songs. It's certainly possible that the song was written by him, but it's also that possible that someone else wrote the book and published it over, uh, with Solomon's oversight, that he was sort of responsible for the publication of the song. All right, so let's look at the genre. Is this a play? Is this poetry or is this allegory? Those seem to be the main three options. Now, for many centuries, the Song of Solomon was said to be an allegory. Now, who can define what an allegory is? Do you know what an allegory is? Give me an example of the world's most famous allegory. Kate, do you have an idea? Allegory. Okay, story that represents... Almost like a parable, um, that sort of thing. What if, can somebody give me the name of the world's most famous allegory? I'll give you a hint. Tortoise, uh, and, the tortoise and the hare. That's a good allegory. Pilgrim's Progress. A very obvious allegory. <laughs> the man's name is Christian, and he's going on a journey to the celestial city. It's not very subtle, but it's a, still a very powerful allegorical book. <laughs> Any other allegories that you know? Oh, yes, the allegory that Nathan told to King David. You know, he told this story about there was a, a poor man with one sheep and then a rich man with many sheep, and the rich man steals his, uh, the poor man's only sheep, and he says, that's you. You are the man. It's an allegory. Okay. Now, Jewish interpreters uh, have said that the woman in the song represented, represents Israel, 
while uh, Christian allegorical interpreters have said that the woman in the story uh, symbolizes the church. Again, that's Paul. The church is the bride of Christ. According to the allegorical interpretation, the man in the song symbolizes either Yahweh, that's the Jewish uh, interpretation, the Lord, the, or Jesus, that is the Christian interpretation. When uh, employing the allegorical interpretation strategy, the only limit is the imagination of the interpreter. Now, raise your hand if that seems like that might be a red flag. Okay? <laughs> There's a reason that we do not do allegorical interpretation anymore. Okay, here's an example of allegorical interpretation from the ancient church father, Cyril of Alexandria. Now, see if you can guess his allegorical interpretation of this verse. Song of Solomon 1, verse 13. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Okay, what might the allegor allegorical interpretation of that be? If you guessed that the breasts represent the Old and New Testaments and the sachet of myrrh represents Jesus who rests between the Old and New Testaments, then you are ready to write an allegorical commentary on the book of Song of Solomon. Okay? Some interpreters believe that the Song of Solomon is a play. That has been an interpretation that's gained some traction in recent years. In this view, the text is a dramatic dialogue between two lovers, he, Solomon, and she, Solomon's bride. There's also a chorus of others who move the story along. The NIV, ESV, and CEV, which is the... Uh, contemporary English version, translators have actually enshrined this view into the text itself, labeling the various speakers. Uh, does anybody have a, one of those versions? Does your book of the Bible label those speakers, he and she and the others, the chorus? Yes, some of you? Yep, I'm seeing some yeses. M mine does. I use the ESV Bible for my reading and preaching, and mine says that. Now, some proponents of the dramatic interpretation theory identify a love triangle between Solomon, the Shulamite woman, and an anonymous country shepherd who is the Shulamite's, Shulamite woman's true love. You'll see the, these characters in the story. Now, here's a summary of the, of the three-character view, again, from Dillard and Longman, Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman. Uh, the quote is, Solomon, the brazen apostate and polygamist, has insensitively and lustfully abdicated, uh, abducted, excuse me, abducted the Shulamite in order to add her to his harem. Sounds plausible. She is devoted and pure, however, and retains her ardent love for the shepherd. Okay, plausible. Now, here are some problems with that, that view. Uh, the first is dialogue. As you read the Song of Solomon, it's not always clear as to which character is speaking. Uh, they have sort of assigned lines to who they guess is speaking, and sometimes it's very obvious that it is the woman speaking, and sometimes it's very obvious that it is the, the man speaking, but 
throughout this story, especially when it gets to the others of the chorus, it's not always as clear as uh, the uh, proponents of this view would have us believe. It's a little bit more ambiguous. Plot. Uh, is there a clear story here? Well, other than the wedding and the honeymoon scenes, there does not appear to be a clear uh, A to B storyline or plot in the book. It seems a little bit looser than that. Uh, another problem is uh, drama. Uh, if the Song of Solomon is a play, it's the only example of a play that we have from ancient literature. Uh, as they do more and more archaeological digs and findings, there are no other examples of ancient Hebrew plays or ancient Mesopotamian or Egyptian plays. They didn't seem to be writing a lot of plays. Uh, what about the chorus or the others? Well, ancient Greek plays did feature a chorus, but these did not appear to uh, appear until 700 BC, approximately 200 years after the reign of King Solomon. So that's sort of a later development in drama. You will find Greek choruses, but it's sort of importing that 200 years uh, later. Okay, now given the difficulties with the alternative views, it's probably best to see the Song of Solomon as a collection of love poems. Together, these poems explore the beauty of love, again, within the covenant of marriage. This view that the book is a collection of love poems has been bolstered in recent years by the discovery of some ancient Mesopotamian, uh, Egyptian, and Syrian love poetry, poems which use similar language and explore similar themes as the Song of Solomon. So again, we have these ancient collections of, of love poems from other cultures which seem to sort of fit with some of the same ideas which we find in the book. All right, let's look at some theological themes. The first is God's gift. The Song of Solomon shows us that sexual relationships are a gift from God. This message stands in stark contrast to the message that we often hear in our own culture. Uh, again, here's Dillard and Longman again. They say, our society promotes the idea that a life without some type of sexual stimulation is boring at least and perhaps meaningless. What has happened is that sexuality has been made into an idol into our culture. Okay? The Song of Solomon's view of sex and sexuality also challenges a common Christian misunderstanding. Some Christians convey the mistaken idea that all sex is shameful and sinful and wrong, uh, celibacy being sort of the highest virtue. That was certainly an idea that was very prevalent uh, throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, priests in the Roman Catholic Church are uh, devoted to celibacy, uh, sort of with the idea that Sex and sexuality is, is a lower passion, or, uh, if not overtly sinful, then it's certainly lower on, on the chain of Christian virtues. Uh, Song of Solomon counters that view by portraying love and romance and marriage and sexuality as gifts to be celebrated, not rejected by God's people. Make sense? Okay. Any questions?
Mom, Dad, uh, you want to make this any more awkward here? Uh, what's that now? Yes, yeah, not a lot, not a lot, a lot to say. And I'm okay with that. Now, since sex is a gift from God, we should express our romantic sexual feelings to our partners using expressive, creative, and even evocative language. Now, contrast the beautiful, poetic, elevated language used in Song of Solomon with the obscene lyrics that we hear in many, if not most, modern-day love songs. It's really night and day. And so the Song of Solomon says uh, sex and sexuality and love and romance is beautiful. It's a gift from God, and therefore it should uh, be communicated in a way where we use elevated, poetic, beautiful language to describe this and not coarse, debased descriptions, again, that we tend to find uh, in modern culture. And lest you think that I am picking on modern culture, it was present in ancient culture too, this sort of debasement of sexuality. So the Song of Solomon was not just uh, challenging our own modern culture as if it's the worst now that it's ever been. It was actually challenging its own culture too, to think differently about love and sex and romance and sexuality as a gift from God. If we turn down the volume on God's love song, we will inevitably turn up the volume on the world's love songs, which express love using words and themes that are as obscene as they are degrading. So we want to elevate love and sex and romance and sexuality as gifts from God. All right, next theme is God's design. Song of Solomon also shows us God's design for sex and sexuality. Sex is to be celebrated within the context of a heterosexual, covenantal, monogamous marriage relationship. Song of Solomon is a not-so-subtle rebuke to Solomon himself, who had multiple wives and concubines. It's also a not-so-subtle rebuke to our own culture. In our culture, we have same-sex marriage, no-fault divorce, uh, premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, prostitution. The list goes on and on and on. And against that background, uh, the book of uh, Song of Solomon is saying, essentially, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you how God has designed for this to work so that you can experience the full gift and blessing of God's design for our marriage relationships. When it comes to sex and sexuality, our world has promised enlightenment and has instead delivered chaos, confusion, disillusionment, dysfunction, disease, depression. The question is, will we reclaim God's design for sex and sexuality? If so, there's no better place to start than the Song of Solomon. Okay? Next theme, a new Garden of Eden. It's worth noting that much of the physical intimacy in the book happens in a garden. Somebody read Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. 
Come on. I'm doing the whole lecture on this book. Come on, give me, give me one, one verse. Now, just a little note here. I interpret wine with milk allegorically only because it sounds gross. I would not, I don't know why you would do that, but apparently that was a thing in the ancient world. Who am I to judge? Now, garden, intimacy in the garden. The garden imagery evokes memories of the Garden of Eden where God told Adam and Eve, Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Later, we're told, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When sin entered the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were alienated from God and alienated from one another. Their alienation was physical as well as spiritual. Someone read Genesis 3, verse 7. Loincloths to hide their nakedness. They were ashamed. In the Song of Solomon, the two lovers find themselves uh, in a garden once again, only this time they are naked without shame. The very act of physical intimacy between married people is, in that sense, a, a picture or a foretaste of the new creation. All right, let's talk about how this approaches the New Testament. God's name, Yahweh, is not explicitly mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Does anyone know another book of the Bible where God's name is not explicitly mentioned? Anyone? Esther, Esther right. Now, the closest mention... Uh, God's name of God's name is in the so is Song of Solomon eight verse six, in which Yah is a suffix taking the Hebrew word for flame and turning it into flame of the Lord. Someone read Song of Solomon eight verse six. Now, it doesn't come across that way in, in, uh, in English, but in the original Hebrew, uh, the full name of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who revealed himself as Yahweh to Moses in the burning bush, that full name isn't used. It's a part of a name. I'll use an example from my own name. My name is Joel. In Hebrew, it is Yoel which means Yahweh is El, El, God. See? So, but the full name Yahweh is not part of my name. It is Yo, El. You see? So it's part of it. In this same way, the flame of the Lord is a part of the word, but not itself. Now, why is that important? Let's talk about it. So the question then is, is this book about God at all? 
is it just a collection of love poems, which is sort of interesting, but not really part of our spiritual journey as we seek to walk with the Lord, apart from giving us sort of information or thoughts about love and sex and romance. The answer is that the covenant love depicted in the Song of Solomon is a metaphor for the covenant love that exists between God and his people. Throughout the Old Testament, when God's people break the covenant, they are likened to spiritual adulterers. Nowhere is this clearer than in the book of Hosea, where Hosea literally takes a, a prostitute to be his wife. She is unfaithful to him. And then God reveals to Hosea that this is a picture or a sense of the unfaithfulness that the people have exhibited toward their God. So that's a big theme in the scripture. The wonder of the gospel is that God not only forgave and married his adulterous people, Israel, he also extended his covenant love to Gentile people like us. Somebody read Genesis, or excuse me, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. So as the church, we are now the bride of Christ, the covenant people of God, the new covenant people of God, uh, engrafted into the vine, who is Christ, through God's grace. We are saved by grace through faith, just as Abraham was saved by grace through faith in the promises of God. So we are now, as the church, the bride of Christ. As the bride of Jesus Christ, we have spiritual intimacy with God, a total connection that can only be compared to the intimacy described in the Song of Solomon. Being rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, we are free to experience physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual intimacy with our spouses. Ultimately, the Song of, Song of Solomon shows us that romantic love and physical intimacy expressed within the covenant of marriage are gifts to be celebrated. Okay, that is the Song of Solomon. Any questions about the book? <laughs> What's that? Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Any, any questions about the book? What do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Have you read the Song of Solomon? Have you ever felt wildly uncomfortable reading the Song of Solomon and wondered, why is this even in the Bible? Steve. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, given the difficulties of interpretation and given the, uh, the questions about authorship, how did this book make the final list of the canon of the scriptures? Well, I think the short answer is that it was associated with Solomon, who was widely believed to be, next to David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. In fact, if you were probably to ask an ancient Israelite, who is our greatest king? Now, we would say... 
David, the man after God's own heart, they would say Solomon. Because Solomon built the temple, which was the center of religious life in ancient Israel. Uh, under Solomon, uh, Israel reached its zenith, its height of political power and influence. Uh, the queen of Sheba, you remember, came to Solomon to seek out his wisdom. So they would say Solomon. So anything associated with Solomon, whether authored by Solomon or endorsed and produced or published by Solomon, would have been considered to be uh, great literature in the ancient world. So that's probably one part of it, uh, at least within, within Israel and the covenant people of God. That's probably one aspect of it. I think the second aspect of it is if you read the book itself, it is a beautiful book. Um, I always hate to play the original languages card because I don't want you to be discouraged from reading the Bible in English. It's beautiful in English, but it's actually even more poetic when you read it in Hebrew. Now, my Hebrew is, you know, probably uh, second or third grader Hebrew. You know, I would still be in Hebrew school if I was an actual ancient Israel Israelite. But even reading it in Hebrew, you pick up on some of the uh, Hebrew poetry is, uh, is not the same as English poetry, which relies a lot on um, similar sounds and rhyming. Um, ancient Hebrew poetry is a lot about the meter of it and the way the words sound and flow together. It's almost like, like water. It's sort of this interesting rhythm of the music. And so when you read it, especially in Hebrew, it, it's just a beautiful book. I mean, it, it just so clearly and beautifully expresses um, what we as husbands and wives feel for one another uh, within marriage. So I can't say definitively why it was put in there. That's my guess. And we do know that it was in no sense a late addition to the Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon was formed for many, many uh, generations, um, at least for, during that 400-year period of silence between the Old and New Testament, it was already formed and widely accepted that the song was part of the canon. So that's my best guess. But uh, if you find something else, you know, an Old Testament scholar or expert who's got an idea, I'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing in the song that you would find that would in any way uh, contradict anything else that the Bible says about sex and sexuality and marriage. In many ways, it sort of amplifies it by make, putting it to us in sort of a lyrical, poetic form. Dave? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Any, yeah, Cindy. <laughs>
-hmm. That's a good point. I, it would be, it would be, uh, I hate to say glaring omission, but it would certainly be a significant omission if the Bible had nothing to say about uh, marriage and love and romance in our heart uh, beyond sort of the propositional statements which we find in the Old Testament law. Um, and you know, the book of uh, Psalms picks up on this uh, too, though not as specifically focused on the marriage relationships. Again, it, all the poetry books um, are a real blessing to us because it reminds us that um, our affections matter to God. Our hearts matter to God. Now, I would contend that our affections need to be guided by our intellect and, and the true things that we know and believe about God. But um, to have a faith that is a merely intellectual faith or merely an intellectual assent to sort of the propositional truths of the scriptures is in no way a biblical faith. I mean, the, the scripture uh, canonizes uh, the the emotions and feelings of our hearts. No, I think that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I th if, if you couldn't hear, I think what his point is, and I, I, I tell me if I'm summarizing it correctly, is essentially that it is a good thing for us uh, to take back a biblical Christian look at sex and sexuality uh, to talk about this with our children at an appropriate age, you know, of course, but to talk about this, to think about this, to talk about it with one another so that we don't just sort of leave that issue totally off the table 
and say, hey, if you want to know about this, well, you got to go over here, you know, outside of the church into the world. And the world will teach you about what sex and sexuality should be. And we're not going to really comment on it at all. Is that a fair Yeah, that's certainly some good points. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's look at the time here. We got a little bit of time. Any other thoughts, questions? Did I see somebody over here? Had a yep. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know that I can fully summarize that, um, but I think that it's, for just in case you couldn't hear, um, I think it's a good point that we have in many ways turned uh, sex and sexuality into an idol. Uh, we've sort of uh, redefined it, taken away the aspect of intimacy that we find in it, sort of spiritual and emotional, and sort of reduced it to the level of physical intimacy, and then divorced it from covenant and relationship and commitment. And in so doing, we have sort of created a, a bastardization of what God had created sex and sexuality to be.
Yeah, that's always that's a good question and good thoughts. I think that always does, uh, you know, challenge us. How do we express our um, unabandoned sense of love and passion for God, uh, but in a context in which, uh, I guess within, I guess maybe the answer is the answer is covenant. It is that by we can uh, give ourselves fully to the worship of God, knowing that we are in covenant relationship with God, the terms and uh, strictures of the covenant sort of defining the boundaries of, of our love and abandonment. Does that make sense? That sounded a little bit eggheaded. But I think the, the, the real problem with pagan worship was it was so completely wild and so completely abandoned that maybe we have sort of, you know, pulled back for fear of falling into that. But maybe if we think that we worship God the way we do with love and abandon uh, within the context of the covenant, God's gracious, self-giving, sacrificial love for us, then it prevents us from divorcing emotion from content and character and relationship. Does that make sense? Because, I mean, listen, sadly, you know, you can create a certain emotion with how you dim the lights and how the type of music you play and the volume of music, and you can create excitement with music and you can create a subdued feeling with music, but we don't want to manipulate people into sort of uh, only outward expressions of our emotions. We want, but at the same time, we don't want to hinder the <laughs> expression of emotions. So it's a challenge for us as elders and worship leaders, and for all of us as Christians, about how do we worship God in spirit and in truth, giving ourselves to him wholeheartedly with all of our heart and all of our emotions, but at the same time not losing that covenant connection to who God is. Maybe the answer is we need to do more studying in the Song of Solomon to learn how that happens. Well, let's see. I'm looking at the time here. Uh, we're about 20 minutes to the worship service. I'm going to go ahead and close this with a word of prayer and... Uh, we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for this book, The Song of Solomon. Lord, there are many questions and mysteries that are taken up within this book. We will probably never plumb the depths of this glorious revelation that you've given us. But I pray, Lord, that you'd be with us by your spirit, that you would empower our intellect and our understanding, that you would empower our feelings and our emotions, and that by your spirit, we might come to love you more deeply. That those of us who are married and are in within a covenant relationship of marriage, that we would love our spouses more deeply. And I pray that as a church, we would look to you in faith and give the gift of biblical sexuality to the next generation, that we might teach them the beauty and holiness and goodness and joy of what you have designed for husbands and wives within the covenant of marriage. Lord, these are great and grand requests. And so we ask that you would answer them for the sake of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys. See you next week. Isaiah.